Good morning. Today's scripture passage will be Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, in this Advent season, as we are caught between two positions, one being the brokenness of our world and the longing of what we want to have happen in and through you, we today are grateful for texts like Romans 7 that help us to know how to live in this waiting season. And I pray today that you would help us to understand what is happening in this passage and that you would feed us from this text and then scatter us into the world in this week better equipped to serve you, follow hard after you, and fight and fight and fight and never give up. So come now, please help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1996, when my wife Sarah was pregnant with our twins, there were two books that were especially helpful to us during that season. The first, of course, was the Bible. I was a young pastor in a church. The senior pastor was in the process of transitioning to another church, and uh, we wondered what in the world's going to happen with us. We're pregnant. We've got twins. And In that moment, the Bible and its truths, its promises became real in a way that was just really unique in our lives. So the Bible was the first book, but there was two. The second book was not inspired, although it might as well have been. The book was What to Expect When You're Expecting. So... How many of you know this book that I'm talking about? Many of you should. 14 million copies have been sold, four editions. Uh, USA Today places it on the list of the 25 most influential books in the last 25 years. I don't know what that says about our culture, but the fact of the matter is, is it was a really helpful book, and here's the reason why. It essentially helped us to settle in and understand what's going to happen throughout the course of a pregnancy. So we are, when we are wondering, hey, is this normal, we could look at the book and understand if it was or really not. And so what the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, did is to help to manage our expectations of pregnancy. Help to take away sort of the mystery, if you will, of what was going to happen. And in so doing, it, it gave us a tremendous amount of hope, allowing us just to sort of enjoy the ride of pregnancy, or at least allowed me to enjoy the ride of pregnancy. Expectations are not only important to think about for new parents, but they're also important for those who call themselves the followers of Jesus. It's important to think about this question today. What do you expect for normal Christianity to look like? How do you think about 
struggles with sin and temptation and even failure. What do you expect the Christian life to look like on its really good days? It's a really important question and one that I think Romans chapter 7 really helps us with. It's been a joy to walk through this text as the concluding thought of Romans chapter 7 in total. And three weeks ago, I ended the treatment of Romans 7, 7 to 20 with an illustration that actually proved to be far more helpful than what I thought it would when I wrote it. The illustration was essentially this, that many people, at least in my experience personally and pastorally, view the Christian life as eventually I'm going to get to a point where I'm just kind of coasting and I'm there, I've arrived. And I compared it to a an escalator that's moving upwards. And you sort of just get on and you just ride all the way to glory. And that is not an accurate view of the Christian life at all. In fact, I find it to be very unhelpful and even depressing. In fact, that model almost makes me mad. Because it just doesn't fit the reality of life. Instead, I suggested to you that the Christian life is more like an escalator that's going downward with the pull of gravity of sin and decadence in our culture. And there are people who are riding down that downward escalator. And Christianity is awakening to the reality of where that escalator is heading, putting your faith in Christ, and then walking up the downgoing escalator. That at the end of the day, Christianity is a life of fighting, of struggling, of wrestling, and of never, ever quitting. Christians are not those who are perfect. Christians are not those who never struggle. Rather, they are those who never give up. So the vision for following Christ, the expectation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, does not involve either sinless perfectionism. I'm going to arrive, and I'm never going to struggle again. That didn't happen until heaven. Nor does it involve some sort of sinful surrender where you simply say, well, I'm always going to struggle, so why don't I just get in? No, no, no. Or give in. Rather, the vision is of spiritual triumph in the midst of human tension. And, and that's really the sum total, the big idea, the thesis of, I think, Romans 7, 21 through 25. It is that there is spiritual triumph or gospel triumph in the midst of tension. And today I want to try and help you see this and understand it in a new way. The text that we left last week was Romans seven eighteen. It says this, For I do not know, for I, rather I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So Paul has that thought, and then he has the conclusion in verses 21 to 25. So this text today is really the conclusion of all of what Paul is saying in the entire chapter Seven of this book of Romans. Now, it also serves to create a tension that will not be fully resolved until we get to Romans chapter 8, and that will be the first Sunday of the new year. We'll take six weeks to study Romans 8. It is the summit, I think, of the book as we see the beauty of what God has done for us and the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you want to celebrate and be a part of that, you need to come back in January, the first week. But today, this text is very depressing (laughs) merry christmas so it's not it's realistic and you need that 
especially during this season. So there's three things that Paul looks at regarding the inside battle. Here's the first one. And that is that he assesses the internal. He identifies what's going on inside of our souls and inside of our hearts, and he assesses what's happening. It's like he peels back an onion And he begins looking at himself. Notice, for instance, all of the personal references in verses 21 to 25. Notice the number of times he uses the word I. For I find it to be a law that when I want to do right. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He talks about things like who will deliver me or my mind or my flesh. So for Paul, this is a very personal section. He wants to understand and identify what is happening to him. And the reason this is helpful is because it helps to identify what is happening inside of every single one of us who claim to be a follower of Jesus. Now in verse 21, Paul says this, So I find it to be a law. That word law could also be translated as a principle. Or when he looks inside of himself, he he sees a, a governing reality. And what is that governing reality? He says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So this really is a summary of what he said previously, and it essentially is this, that there is this constant potential for sin to erupt on the scene at any moment. Paul says there's this reality going on inside of me, that that there's this part of me that wants to do what's right, and yet at any moment sin could spring upon me, and it's always there. For instance, as even we go through this um, service today, you could be singing a wonderful, glorious, God-centered song, and then have a really wicked thought just kind of flow right across your brain, and you think, where in the world did that come from? Well, Paul's going to help us understand that. Or you could be listening to this sermon and you're like, man, that's an awesome point. I hope so-and-so is listening, right? And in this moment, you moved from genuine receiving of the word to a hypocritical application in someone else's life. So what Paul is saying here is to be human and to be a follower of Jesus is to engage in a constant tension. Every single one of us can relate to this. I mean, if if you're a Christian and you've lived long enough to have any experience with yourself, you know how quickly this sort of thought or wrong action can quickly take over. You walk out the door from a wonderful service of meeting the Lord, you run into somebody and that conversation turns in a way that it shouldn't. You get in the car, you close the door and you begin to take off and suddenly what was a glorious moment becomes an awful moment. To be human is to always have evil close at hand. Paul says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He uses this word law because all of Romans chapter 7 really is about law. It's about how does the law relate to the believer? How does an external law relate to internal righteousness? And throughout verses 21 to 25, you're going to see some other references to the law. They don't mean the same thing in every case, but... For instance, verse 22, Paul refers to the law of God as something that he delights in. I think that refers to the Mosaic law, God's inspired law. Verse 23, he refers to the law of sin. That's what's happening inside of him. His resistance to the law of God is a law of sin to him. And then also verse 25, he talks about the law of his mind. So I serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. There's this law 
Verse 23, there's the law of my mind. Verse 23, the law of sin. So what, what Paul is identifying here is that for all of this talk of the Mosaic external law, there is this other law that's also a problem. So the law is just not a problem on the outside. There's a law that's inside of him that's actually waging a war against the external law of the law of Moses and God's law. So essentially, Paul sees a law battle, an internal law battle. Now, verses 22 to 23 provide more color on verse 21. He explains it. Let's look at it. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Verse 23, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So Paul recognizes that on the one hand, he finds himself delighting in the law of God, loving the law of God with his mind. But on the other side, he he recognizes there's this other law that is at work within him, this law that actually wants him to be captive to it, that's going to resist the law of God, and he he sees this divided reality within him. This is not the only place that Paul talks this way. In the book of Galatians, instead of using law, he uses flesh and spirit. He says this, and this is Galatians 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So in, in Galatians 5, Paul says there's spirit and there's flesh, and they oppose one another. In Romans 7, he doesn't use these two terms of spirit and flesh. Instead, he uses a cluster of words to describe the inward man and the outward man. The inward man is described as having an inner being. Verse 22, in my inner being... Or verse 23, it's the law of my mind. And, and, and this aspect, this internal reality, is the law-keeping, good-desiring, commandment-embracing part of Paul. Similarly, as he says to the Spirit, about the Spirit, in Galatians chapter 5. There's another part of him, though, which he describes with terms like the law of sin, in verse 23, the body of death, in verse 24, and the flesh, in verse 25. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, Though the outward man is perishing or wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So all of that to say what Paul is making the point here and what you need to take away is this. There are really two sides of every person who claims to be a follower of Jesus. There there are two realities, two sides. They're not equal in their power or equal in their authority, but there are two really compelling forces that are at work in the life of every believer. And when Paul analyzes himself, when he, when he pulls back the onion or the layers of that onion of his heart, when he really looks at himself, he sees this constant battle that's raging on the inside. So to return back to the escalator illustration, what, what, what Paul is seeing is that he feels this gravitational force that's pulling him. He feels the gravitational force, and he knows that I've got to start walking the other direction, and yet he recognizes that that walking and that struggle is not an easy one. Now, you need to know that Paul, in identifying these two categories, is not acquiescing to that internal battle or suggesting that we ought to give up, but rather what he is doing is providing an assessment of what's happening on the inside. He is assessing what is going on in the soul. Now, why is that helpful? It's helpful for two reasons. First, 
It's helpful because it's the role of the Bible to tell us what is happening on the inside. It's a beautiful thing that the Bible is able to correctly diagnose our human condition and to reveal what is really going on. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that the Word of God is living and powerful. That it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, we ought to be thankful because the Bible serves as a beautiful mirror to show us what we're like. And the reality is that as human beings, without the Word of God, we would consistently come to the wrong conclusions about the real problem. We wouldn't know who God is. We wouldn't know that we are. We would think who, who we are. We would think that we're doing things that are right. We wouldn't naturally think that we're sinful. We wouldn't think that we have violated God's law. And in His kind and gracious actions of giving us the Bible and giving us His revealed Word, He has showed us who and what we are and what we are like. And that is a great mercy that God tells us what we are really like on the inside. Even if you don't like what you hear. For some of you, that's, that's a real problem. And that is that you have some level of resistance to what the Bible says about you. You may be even here and not a follower of Jesus, and it just drives you crazy, or it's somewhat even offensive that the Bible says that you're a sinner. And my first thought to you would be, well, we're all sinners, so join the group, right? But the second thing is, is the first step towards the gospel, the first step towards receiving Christ, frankly, is getting over yourself. It's coming to terms with the fact that I'm a sinful human being, and there's a war that's raging within me, and I need a solution to that. And even after I come to faith in Christ, that I still need to have the Lord help me to fight the battle that's raging within me. And what this text reminds us is that without God revealing to us what we are like, we would not come to the right conclusions. For some of you, that's, that's the problem with an authority figure in your life. I mean, when you're a teenager, this is at a premium. You just don't want to hear that you're immature. You want to be told that you're an adult when everyone in the world except you knows you're not, right? And then as you grow older, we just, as adults, we kind of hide that teenage thing. And now we want to be known that we're mature or we're wise, and the Bible comes in and just shows us what we're like. And the, the, the tragedy is that sometimes we just resist that. In the same way that it would be ridiculous to be angry with a radiologist. When you have a broken arm, you go in to take a picture and they bring you this, the, the slide and they show you, here's your arm, it's broken. Who gets mad at a radiologist? What are you telling me this for? Right? And you're there because you need to know what the issue is. And that's what the Bible does for us. Here's the other thing that it does. In helping to assess the internal, it helps us to keep out of the extremes. So on the one hand, there could be the extreme of despair, where as you look at the struggle within your soul, you just you just give up. Like, I can't win. This, this struggle, this battle, I'm just so tired of it, I'm just going to give in. And some of you, that's, that's where you're at today in particular sins. And, and, and my prayer and my hope is that you would come out of that sort of mentality, is this despair mentality of, if I'm not ever going to not struggle, then I'm just going to go ahead and give in. And Romans 7 is written for you. And then there's a number of other people who are on the other side of the equation. It's not that they're in despair, it's that they... They're guilty of deception. What they like to do is to present Christianity as everything's awesome. 
They're like walking around like the little Lego character. Everything is awesome. You know, they walk into church and anybody who doesn't have young kids is like, what is he talking about? So, and they're just coming into church. Everything's great. Everything's, I'm killing it. Everything's wonderful. And the reality is it's not. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home like that or went to a school like that or a church like that and you looked around and you're like, am I the only one who struggles in this room? Am I the only one who's battling sin? Am I the only one who's trying to figure out that that text just applied to my life, like you said, doesn't work for me? And what this passage says is that fight, that struggle, that wrestling of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that is the essence of Christianity. That's not abnormal Christianity. To fight and struggle and, 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 and figure out how do we make this work and sometimes fail and then get back up and keep going and keep going and keep going. That's true Christianity, not some sort of appearance of, hey, we got it all together or despair, like this doesn't work, we're just giving in. And so you see, part of the vision of Romans 7 is to help us not to be alarmed when these awful desires come into our view but then also not to give in to them and to fight and fight and fight and fight and never give up until Jesus comes. So that's how Paul assesses the internal. Here's the second thing, and that is he cries out for this desperate longing and he rejoices in it. So there's a desperate rejoicing in deliverance. We hear a gut-wrenching cry from him. He says, Wretched man that I am. The New Living translates this as, Oh, what a miserable person I am. And then he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? So you see, Paul is, is, is reflecting on the tension that he feels and he cries out, I'm a miserable person. The word wretched is used for ruined lands and devastated countries in the Bible. In other literature written around that time, it was used for men who were toiling in quarries for the fatigue of a long march, for the effects of a war, for the results of a plague. I think you get the point. Paul is using an emotionally charged word that fits with what he feels. And if you're honest, you've felt this. You want to do right, and then you don't. Somewhere in your mind, you're like, I'm never doing that again. And then the temptation comes, and you go back. And you're like, I'm miserable. What do I do with this? You come in, you sing songs, and then you, you say something that you shouldn't. And when you're honest, when you look at yourself sort of in the spiritual mirror, you're like, who are you? And that's what Romans 7 speaks to. What's interesting is that the more Paul describes and analyzes his condition the more concerned he becomes. In other words, the more that Paul gets to know himself, the more alarmed he is. One commentator said this, the farther men advance in the Christian life and the more mature their discipleship, the clearer becomes their perspective, listen, of the heights to which God calls them and the more painfully sharp their conscience is of the distance between what they ought to be and where they really are. You know what that means? That means that the, and I found this to be true, that 
the longer I've walked with the Lord, the more I've experienced in life, and the more I understand about me, the more alarmed I am about me. My history with me is not good. And it seems true that the more godly a person is, the more clearly one can see his or her guilt. I knew about guilt when I was seven. I know about guilt in a whole different way at age 43. And to think i got to live with me for another 40 to 50 years, Lord willing, is a little scary thought. That means that for those of you who've lived many years, however you want to define that word, many, if you're older, you're a senior, you ought to be embracing humility at levels that you've never known before. Because you got a track record with yourself, and you know how beautiful God's glory and His grace is, but you also know how unbelievably divided your heart is. This text is hopeful, and yet it is also very humbling. Now what's wonderful is Paul doesn't leave us there. Verse 25, he brings to conclusion... This tension that he created in verse 24 when he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what's beautiful is that he brings worship and gratitude into the equation along with doctrinal substance. So that little phrase, through Jesus Christ our Lord, is an incredibly important statement. We'll look at that in a moment. But for right now, just notice that he brings in worship. He doesn't just say Who's going to save me? I'm going to be saved through Jesus Christ our Lord. No, instead he says, thanks be to God. So there's a worship thing that's coming out of his heart because he's not only aware mentally of what has happened to him because of Christ, but it has captured his his emotions and his affections because he sees what he would be apart from Jesus. Don't don't miss the fact that, that Paul swings from two extremes. He swings, on the one hand, from seeing how wretched he is, and on the other, seeing how glorious God is. To me, this is real Christianity. It is that you can be sorrowful and yet rejoicing. You can, Romans 8, groan under the weight of sin and yet be filled with hope. That I think real Christians are able to hang on to both things at the same time. Wretched man, thanks be to God. Sorrowful, rejoicing. And I think our culture needs Christians who can live in both arenas. Listen, you can hardly watch the news without being aware that there are cultural problems underneath our world and our land that are just springing up all over the place. And I think a a Christian can not only point people to the hope that's in Jesus, but you can also enter into the pain of misunderstandings and long-term injustices and lack of forgiveness and abuse and all the things that go in and people who are frustrated because of where they live and governmental systems that don't seem to work for certain people and then others who think, no, that system is working just fine and you have all of these tensions that are happening and I think a follower of Jesus is one who can actually enter into that and go, yes, our world is terribly broken. It's broken in a level you can't even imagine. Our system is broken. Our government are broken. Our people are broken. Our cities are broken. Our economy is broken. I'm broken. You're broken. Everything's broken. You can fully enter into the depth of that emotion and then say but thanks be to God through Jesus there's a way for it to be fixed and for the hearts to be restored and for people to be renewed and so rather than just saying our world is broken and leaving it there or rather than just saying people need Jesus and leaving it there I think I think real Christians walk into both 
And they're able to navigate the difficult and painful waters of people's grief and their sorrow and their pain and their sense of injustice and their lack of understanding between one another and say, look, the only thing that can really fix all this is for Jesus to come. So in this Advent season, you ought to have something in your heart that says, Lord Jesus, our world is so not right. Would you please come? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does that mean? It's all over the book of Romans. Did a survey with some other brothers as to how the book of Romans captures this idea of what does it mean to be in Christ? What are some truths that you need to remember about what it means to be in Jesus? And here's 14 of them. Just receive this and let it bless you. Romans 3, we are justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 4, righteousness is counted to those who believe in Him. Romans 5 and verse 1, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 2, through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Romans 5, 11, we rejoice in God through Jesus Christ by whom we have received reconciliation. Romans 5, 21, grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 1, we were buried with Christ. We were raised with Him so we could walk in newness of life. Romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 2, the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 8.10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Romans 8.38 just ends it. There is neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, things present or things to come. There is no power or height or depth or anything in creation that could ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the truth. So, so why do we need these verses? Why do we need, call them fighter verses, to fight the brokenness within us and to fight the brokenness around us? Because we live, friends, in a broken world with broken lives and broken desires. And the fact of the matter is that there is deliverance that is possible in our fight. The deliverance isn't ultimate until Jesus comes. But as we use these truths, they help us to keep walking. It means that we long for Christ's deliverance and that we are weeping worshipers. We're so enamored with the beauty of God and we're so broken with the contrast in the world. Now it would seem like verse 25a would be a great place to end. And you could just end there. You clap. Let's go home. And Paul would ride his theological horse into the sunset. Some sort of glowing hallmark movie-like scene at the end. But he doesn't do that. Why not? Because it's not realistic. It's true. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's absolutely true. But you're going to walk out of here in a few minutes. 
And you're going to talk to real people who are broken. And you're going to have lunch with people who are sinful. And you're going to have to parent kids who are broken. And you're going to have to have family members over at Christmas. And the question is, what is your expectation of what that should be like? If your expectation is for your Christmas holiday, for instance, that everyone's going to get along, there's not going to be any awkward moments, it's just going to be a beautiful moment, we're all going to be together, newsflash, it's not normal. So if you get in your car, you close the door, and you're like, let's go. If that's... Your perspective, and there's some elements of tension, that's, that's normal. If everyone gets along, you have like four hour devotionals together, you pray around the world, take an offering for India, you know, do all these things, and, and everyone is just, oh, I love seeing you again, and they really mean it, that is very, very, very unusual. Normal human experience involves a lot of tension. A lot of challenge. And part of, I think, the help of this text is just coming to terms with the fact that the Christian life in the real world has lots of difficulties, and it means you just keep on walking, and you keep loving, and you keep pouring in, and you keep being gracious, and you keep fighting sin, and you just keep, 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 keep going. That's why Paul ends, I think, this text not in triumph, but he ends it in tension. And I'm so thankful that he does. He says, so then, so then. It's a marker. It means here's the concluding thought or here's the final word. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul is not making a hard and fast distinction between your mind, that your mind's good and your body's bad. Because who, who's going to say in this room that their mind is all good? Nobody. What he is saying is that there is this tension between who I am on the inside, who I am on the outside, that's one way of thinking of it, or there's this battle between two ways of living that are happening with inside of me, that there is a real and difficult tension. He's saying, first, that there is a two-sided battle that is just a part of the existence of a Christian. That everyone who comes to Christ, they have been declared righteous And the beautiful but traumatic thing is they've been declared righteous, but practically they still wrestle. They are forgiven sinners who still struggle with sinning, which is why Advent means we're waiting. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the struggle to be over. It's the hope, the longing that the one who came at the first advent will come again and make all things right. And so this text acknowledges that there is a divided aspect of every person who is a follower of Jesus. Secondly, Paul talks about these two laws, this law of the mind, or the law of God rather with my mind, and the law of sin that I serve with my flesh. It is that these two laws could not be any more different And so the question is today, which path are you more on? Some of you today, you've followed the paths of sin and you've sort of thrown in the towel and the message from Romans 7 to you is this, the path of the law of sin couldn't be any more different than the path of the law of God. And you need to realize it's time to get back. It's time to repent and turn. And yes, repent again. And I know it may have been the sixth or the six hundredth time that you've confessed to the Lord, but you cannot go down this path. You can't. 
And then finally, he, he locates the law of God as a battle in the mind and locates the law of sin as something in his flesh. And again, it's not that he's saying his body is materially bad or there's something bad fundamentally in his body. What he's saying is that with every mental or intentional desire that we develop, there's a battle for us to then take actions and do what's right. In other words... Following Jesus involves understanding some things mentally. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it means that you end up putting your faith in Him. You believe in Him. That that is first something mental. It's something you think. It's something you believe. But then Christianity also involves an action that is matched with what is happening inside of the mind and heart. And for some of you today, what if you're a follower of Jesus, what that means is, is that you need to be sure that you care for your mind You're never going to follow Jesus in actions if you don't follow Him in your mind and heart. And so when you read the Scriptures, it's not just something that you should do or you ought to do. It is the way in which you get the law of God into the very fiber of your thinking. And if you're not careful, or if you avoid this Word, or remove yourself from the hearing of God's Word or the singing of God's Word, it will not be long until you create your own law and your own mind, and that will never end well. The Christian life is a battle, a struggle on the inside to bend the mind and shape the life in accordance with the heart of God. There will be many glorious victories. They will be real and substantial, but there will never be a moment when you are not engaged in the battle at some level. Defeat happens when you begin to coast and allow the gravitational pull of the escalator to have its effect on you. The vision of the Christian life is to keep walking up the escalator. This is helpful to me because it it shows me what real gut-level warfare of the Christian life is like. It helps me to settle in and to fight the battle that God has given me and hopefully to help you to fight the battle that God has given you without being overly alarmed that wrong desires come. So last week I went on a number of runs outside, three, four miles, and I found myself at one point really struggling, had a side ache, it was cold, and invariably my mind says something like this, why do you do this? But I've heard that voice so many times over the last 10 years that that voice no longer makes me stop. Now, when I started running, it did. I was in a mile in. I was like, why am I doing this? And I would stop. And now the voice is still there. Why do you do this? This isn't fun. This isn't enjoyable. Of all this, this, this back language that is running through my brain. And I've learned to simply run through it. And to not listen to that voice that says, why don't you just stop? I've learned that part of the joy of running is not listening to the non-running part of my brain. (laughs) And part of the joy of following Jesus is not listening to the part of you that says, it's a dumb sermon, don't listen to that. Don't sing that song. This isn't real anyways. Just do what you want. Have fun, man. You only live. Those things may never go away. The difference is, is you have an eclipsing voice that says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
You have a eclipsing voice that says, that is a law that will lead to death. I choose life in Jesus. You have a different voice that is speaking to you through the Word and through the Spirit. So the question is, is is, is that your vision of Christianity? Do you, do you expect long, hard fights? Are you in the struggle for the long haul? Are you the kind of person that's like, I'm in this, Lord, till the very end, and it is hard, and I'm weeping. There's times that I get discouraged, but I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep walking. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up to the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that I will ultimately win when you come, but until that day, I will keep on walking, and I'm not going to stop, and I'm going to bring as many people along with me as I possibly can and say, look, we got to keep walking. One of the songs on our Ignite album captures this, titled, I Will, I'll Keep Walking. And in a moment, Eric's going to come and lead us, and we're going to sing along as you, I want to recommit your heart to what it means to keep on walking. Even if the darkness, according to the text of the song, is thick, and you can't see where God is right now, or if your high places and your idols are haunting to you, and you need to reach out to the Lord, then I want you to be encouraged to keep on walking. And in a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And I'm just going to open up this front area here today because there's some of you that the decision that you need to make today is not like a definitive, hey, I'm, 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 I'm going to keep walking and never look back and this is it forever. No, no, no. It's simply, Lord, on this Lord's Day, I just need to be reminded that i got to keep on walking. And whether I'm young or old, I just want to come and kneel and pray and say, God, I'm in and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to keep walking, and I'm just not going to quit. And for some of you, that would be a really important decision to make today because it will help you walk a little better next week. For others of you, you just need to stand where you are and just sing and receive the song and say, God, here I am, and I want my kids and my grandkids to walk after you. I want to walk after you, and I just want to renew my commitment that no matter what comes, I'm not going to let go. I'm going to keep on walking. So let's stand together. Eric's going to lead us. The front will be open for you just to come and kneel in prayer as you pray as you feel led. But let us renew our commitment to say, Lord, I'm going to keep on walking. I'm going to keep on walking. I'll keep on walking to liken
such a privilege, Lord, to be a part of an assembly of people whose common confession is, Lord, we're broken, and yet we know a Savior that can heal us. And we pray that as we leave this place today and as we are scattered into this city and around the world, that you would let the light of the beauty of the gospel of Christ shine through us and how we live and how we think, how we parent, how we work, how we laugh, how we play, that in the midst of a broken world that there would be a people whose confession would be, I will keep on walking. So thank you that you empower that, you help that by your spirit, and I pray that until next week that we gather, that the people of this assembly would be marked by much fighting, much striving, much wrestling with sin for the glory of your name and for the edification of your church. Oh, Lord, make it so, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.